are you are you arguing to be right or are you arguing for the best method? What's what's the source of your argument? What's best for the company or what's best for the situation? And there might be lots of answers to that. It isn't necessarily my idea that's going to get us to where we need to be. In fact, if we debate it out, we'll probably come up with something that none of us thought of that's that is better than any of us any one of us would come up with on our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to another great episode of Out of the Hourglass, a podcast channel presented by Nolan Consulting Group. Today we're back with an inside look at the Nolan Consulting Group Book Club. Facilitated by NCG business coach Vince Christie, we're discussing Adam Grant's most recent book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Grant teaches us to examine the critical art of rethinking, learning to question your opinions and open other people's minds, which can position you for excellence at work and wisdom in life. If knowledge is power, knowing what we don't know is wisdom. Out of the Hourglass is a podcast channel dedicated to helping small business owners and contractors visualize their goals develop high-performing teams, and build sustainable growth. It's time to get out of the hourglass. Good morning, everybody. We are here today to hold our Nolan Consulting Group Book Club. We are discussing Think Again by Adam Grant. Uh, If there was an overarching theme of Think Again, Adam Grant likes to drive the point home through telling many stories, a few of which of note, if it was the smoke jumper story of how they could have saved their lives if they had just stopped for a moment to think again on the situation, or BlackBerry, it once had a a dominant hold on the smartphone market. If the corporate executives could have thought again, listening to the engineers, they could have gotten ahead of the situation they are now where they're basically non-existent or the uh, student uh, assignment that a teacher in the Midwest gave an assignment to her class uh, with an outdated textbook from 1940. And only a few of those students had noted that this information was incorrect. Most of them just taking it as fact. So something to note is Adam talks about how in today's society, we are taking on over five times the amount of knowledge per day than we were 30 years ago. So it's not to be understated that changing our minds in light of new information does not make us flip-floppers. That makes us thinking like a scientist, reevaluating, thinking again. Our opinions and our beliefs are just starting points. It's not something to build a personality around. That's more important is values. So let's avoid being a preacher, trying to protect our beliefs, avoid being a prosecutor, trying to find flaws in other people's arguments, and avoid being a politician, trying to win an audience and think more like a scientist. That's good. That's good. (laughs) Very well done. So I wanted to start off with Brian. You had worded it so perfectly. You had said that mental dexterity is more important than mental horsepower. There's a lot of meat on that bone. Why don't you dive into it a little bit? Well, I mean, it, it certainly came across with uh, Mike, Mike Lazaridis, the uh, uh, CEO of BlackBerry, um, 
super bright, a genius by all regards. And uh, he, he did not have the dexterity to, to think that people actually may not need a keyboard and they, and they want some other things. I, I think about this, um, I, I often say, you've probably said this before, what, what God didn't give me an intelligence, he gave me an emotional intelligence, which is the ability to uh, listen hard, be open-minded, and adjust and not stick to a, a conviction. Um, and so I always say um, when I coach, I, I, and when I coach sales, I say, watch for the hole, watch uh, for the hole because a running back runs through the hole. If a running back is not watching the hole, he's gonna miss it. So mental dexterity is the ability not to be caught up in a certain way of thinking and something so well established that you can't watch for the whole. I think that's what makes us good coaches is that ability. That's awesome. That actually reminds me of the movie Seabiscuit. Does anyone remember that, that film where he's riding the horse next to his friend and a guy goes, there's the hole, gotta fly. And he shoots through and wins the race, but he, the Seabiscuit, or I guess the jockey was blind, could, on one eye and couldn't see the hole. Oh, wow. That was a pretty cool one. Blind spots. Yeah. There what it a, is. What a great euphemism. Oof. The blind spots that we have with the mental horsepower, just because we're brilliant doesn't mean we're smart. Being, no being smart is being aware. And I mean, that's why this book for me was just so, so powerful. I mean, I, I think of it with my debates with Andrew and uh, just not not feeling like I have to be right, right? Not feeling like I have to be right and get emotional, but really, and, and I won't take more, more, more time, but um, almost willing to be wrong, which is another point in there, willing to be wrong, because being, being wrong means you're learning more, which is, uh, which is interesting. So there's some input from me, Vince. That's well said. And it's funny that you mentioned blind spots. Jerry's not able to be with us today, but he had sent me his takeaways from this book. That was specifically one of his. He, he said, find your own blind spots and always ask what you can do to continue learning. Nice. nice. So we, the next topic I want to talk about was a takeaway that many of us had, which was the relationship conflict versus task conflict. Andrew, you had mentioned that in one of your takeaways. You want to dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, for me, you know, it, it's great when books mirror each other. There's there's content. They all connect. So uh, there's a lot of sales training in this uh, identity role as part of it. The relationship versus task conflict was one. And I think it connects to what Brian was saying, that if you if you're OK being wrong, then you can set aside any relational differences and really focus on the task. I also, it became clearer to me. I, I probably should have known this already, but it was clarified in the way that he described it, that, you know, a lot of the management teams we work with, they can't get to task conflict because there's so much relational conflict mm. in the way. And I, just the way, I guess it was his description the, the bifurcation of those two things that you've got to deal with the relational conflict and either be able to set it aside so that you can focus on the task or it's, it's just going to devolve into arguing and turf wars and 
um, things like that. So, so Brian and I, I mean, we have a great relationship. I think we're both okay being wrong. And that, that helps. It's actually helped me advocate more for what I think, because I, I can always pull back and say, huh, okay, that's a good point. You know, you can always, it's always okay to be wrong. Could, uh, can I just add on to that? Because, because Andrew and I are, uh, are uh, particularly, um, this is a, an appropriate discussion because I trust Andrew's agenda. And in the five dysfunctions of a team, uh, the absence of trust is the first dysfunction. And um, you can't have great task conflict if you haven't solved the relationship issues, right? Uh, and we've worked hard on that. We, we've worked hard on having the relationship we need to have. Even yesterday, I, I think we were debating. Powerful. Yesterday, we had this uh, debate and he said something in, in a way that I emotionally responded to. And I told him that. I said, I don't mind what you say. I just mind how you say it. Would you mind changing it up a little bit? It's a great moment to be able to just be open with each other that way. And there's no agenda. Right. And I love how Adam Grant had mentioned that. And he had said how, it, yeah, it's a debate, but it's also a dance because it's a give and a take. Someone tries to lead. Another person tries to lead. And it's, it's just a, a balancing act. Right on. So, Andrew, you had also mentioned that this ties in with identity role with the, the conflict of tasks and relationship. Do you want to dive into that at all? Oh, yeah. So I guess he was at a talk, the story he told about going to a seminar or, or he was doing the seminar and a, a professor came up to him or somebody came up to him and talked about being wrong and get, being OK, being wrong. I think I'm describing that right. And so it was identity role that not wrapping your identity around the wrong things that I'm a great prospector. So in, in the sales context, my behaviors are, or um, I forget how, what he, how he described it in the book, but he said, look forward to being wrong. Yeah. The, the yeah. guy, yeah. The guy that came up to him because it's now you're, now you're less wrong than you were before. I thought, I thought that was good. Yeah. Um, but it it's, yeah, it mirrors the sales training. And I think it mirrors a lot of situational leadership too, just that, don't let your identity get wrapped up in the wrong stuff. That's so key. It's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. So thinking about the conflict there, it, it makes me think about the challenge network, which was Catherine's not able to be here, but this was her favorite takeaway of the whole book, uh, developing a challenge network that Adam had referenced as a good flight club um, and determining who your boat rockers are and who your bootlickers are and playing, playing them both against each other and, and working as a team. Molly, you had mentioned about being a disagreeable giver. You want to dive into what that means or what that meant to you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the term agreeable versus disagreeable, I mean, one sounds nicer than the other. And so uh, if you're agreeable, you are an, you come across as a nicer person. You're less likely to get into conflict. You're less likely to stir up any, any issues that might not create, um, a response that's wanted. Um, but that isn't always valuable because sometimes people need to hear the truth and the truth is hard. And so the, I think I, I aim to, I, I fall more aligned on the agree, the agreeable side because I like to be a nice person. I don't, I, I like to avoid conflict when necessary. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are not times where 
it's okay and it's appropriate to disagree, but to disagree on matters where I have I have facts to back me up or I have an and I have or I have an opinion and this is why and I want my voice to be heard because this is how I see I see this is my perspective and how I see the situation. Um, and they, they Adam Grant says that the best employees are not the agreeable ones. And so, you know, how can we challenge ourselves, those who are agreeable? And Brian, I think you've said that you feel like you are often agreeable, especially with coaching sometimes where yeah. people hire you to give them the tough truth sometimes. And this is the moment where you need to disagree with the status quo that they've always been doing. And in staying, instead of just playing Mr. Nice Guy, and I'm you know, talking about myself saying, yeah, that's great. If I actually have an opinion, I should be speaking it and not just letting letting them the moment pass by. Can I just play off that, Mark? Because you, I mean, you've hit a point for me that I I reflect a lot on in my coaching. I want to I want to split the middle. Maybe this is not not okay, but between agreeable and disagreeable. Because I I don't think leading disagreeable is going to be good. Because it's not going to. But, but I, I think be true to your thoughts. Be true to your thoughts is where I come down on this thing. And if if you're not being true to your thoughts, if you're erring on a side of agreeable, you're not being a good coach. And so set set the ground rules that I'm 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 going to speak my mind if that's okay. Um, asking permission to be disagreeable maybe is what I need to do. And then I go in hard because I've got I've paved the way for the relationship piece, right? Because I I don't want to harm the relationship. That's why I'm agreeable. But I need to say, let's peel that back. We've already established that we get along well. Yes, yeah, Molly. Well, well, that's where it relates back to the relationship versus the task conflict. You're being disagreeable about the task that you're speaking about or the task at hand. You're not being disagreeable towards the relationship of the person. And again, that was one thing that was one of my takeaways as well. I'm a, I can be a sensitive person at times. I, or I like, I'm a, I want people to like me. So I take things personally when people are, are giving me opinions that they don't like. And I'm like, you don't like how I think you don't like my thoughts, <laughs> but it goes back to the task at hand and being disagreeable and agreeable over a task conflict is an okay thing. And we need to Andrew, be comfortable with it. Well, I was, I was, um, I, this is so funny to me the, the two words, it was agreeable. Um, not pushers. What was the phrase again? Agreeable. Um, giver and taker. The oh. giver and taker. I, I was, I'm the exact opposite. It was the agreeable part that I identified with. I need to remember to be agreeable because <laughs> I can, I love debating it. I mean, let's, let's get into this. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's have agreeable debate here. Let's uh, like, I need to remember to be agreeable. It was so funny. It's so true. <laughs> so I was, it was the exact opposite takeaway. Molly, more I, agreeable. I love All right, what Andrew, you said. you've had your time. Molly, I love what you said because it, it really is the idea like being disagreeable, and maybe this is because it's me, being disagreeable isn't a bad thing, and or disagreeing is not a bad thing because if what really what it's really about is your overarching principle or the mission is in agreement. Mm. The, but maybe the methods aren't or the tasks involved aren't. And, 
And it's important to step up and say, I don't think this is going to bring us to the outcome that we need. When, when we're being given a vision of what that outcome should look like. Um, so that's, that's where I thought, Molly, you are disagreeable in the most agreeable way. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Dave. Take that as a really high compliment. That's, good. <laughs> that's, that's a great takeaway, Dave. So that highlights a really good point. How do we tell the difference that someone is being a disagreeable giver and not just a genetic dissenter and just, you know, rocking the boat, you know, needlessly? How do we tell the difference if someone is actually providing good feedback and good debate? I, mean, I think it would be point. from from I think it would be from a point of caring. You know, is is there disagreement mm. coming from a point of caring and wanting to get to the same end? Mm. Well, that's that's true too. Something that came up earlier. Are you are you arguing to be right or are you arguing? for the best method what's what's the source of your argument and working hard at am, am i I'm, I'm not arguing to be right here let me set that aside what's what's best for the company or what's best for the situation and there might be lots of answers to that it isn't necessarily my idea that's going to get us to where we need to be in fact if we debate it out we'll probably come up with something that none of us thought of that's that is better than any of us any one of us would come up with on our own. No doubt. Adam Grant also talks about arguing about the how and not necessarily the why. You know, we want to talk about the how to get things done instead of the why, which is more blame storming. Mm. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Oh, man. So the next talking point I wanted to bring up was another one that many of us had as a takeaway, which is, when I say self-doubt or head trash or being a negative Nancy, I feel like that all ties into imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So for those listening, imposter syndrome is kind of a feeling of inadequacy, regardless of our education, experience, accomplishments. We still doubt ourselves in, in light of all of these factors. Um, Brian and Dee, you had some pretty good takeaways on this one. Brian, you had said that imposter syndrome is a good thing. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was a to me in the book. I mean, I, you know, in, in 2004, uh, when I left the corporate world and started Nolan Consulting, I was following Kevin around uh, in these PDCA speeches. And he, he, would, he would speak for, uh, for an hour, and then he'd give me five minutes up on the air to talk about the financials. I felt like an imposter speaking in front of all these contractors. Um, but what it, what it made me do was get better. It made me get better. And I still get better. The, the keynote that I got, I felt like an imposter. What? Me do a keynote? Are you kidding me? Uh, what it made me do is work harder and work harder and better. Now, there have been times I've gone into meetings and things feeling cocky and confident and messed it up greatly. I mean, what is it? And walked out of the going, man, at 50 years old, am I really still missing? Haven't I learned? And it was because of this overconfidence 
thing. So the imposter syndrome maybe is a negative term on a positive ability to always learn and get better and never think you've arrived. And um, that self-doubt is actually what makes you better and work harder. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Oh, yeah, go, go ahead, Colin. The counterpoint to that is it that the lack of confidence can't, you, gotta, you need, need good IR so that it doesn't come through in your behaviors, right? If, if, you, were, if you love that, if you let that imposter syndrome affect your IR and you wouldn't present it as confidently as you did. Right on. Or in, in sales, right? I think it's a big impact in sales. You're having imposter syndrome and you're not good. You know, we always do the, my price is too high. Work, so work, work towards confidence, right? Yeah. The imposter syndrome allows you to work towards a place where you are competent and confidence, which is an interesting discussion. Confidence, competence, he talked about a lot. Great insight. Thanks, Brian. Andrew, what you got? Yeah, when I was playing golf, we used to talk about uh, in the in my prior life, we used to talk about it. You know, if you're not nervous on the first tee of Augusta, you don't really care about winning. So it, it's it's a little bit of imposter syndrome. Like, what am I doing here? Like, you know, I'm, I'm nervous about playing this. I really want to win. But if you haven't gotten yourself, and I also think uh, maybe dovetailing Collins' point, that if, if you haven't been in a situation where you're overconfident, then you don't really, you're not really being ambitious and wanting to, wanting to get yourself into new situations. The key mm -hmm. is to balance the two, be ambitious, be overconfident, get yourself into situations where you're a little bit over your head. Don't be stupid and get yourself into situations where people can get hurt, but balance the two, balancing the two together, have the guts to go play in the masters, but be humble enough to feel a little, a little bit nervous on the first tee as, as you should, if you're, if you're not, if you're not nervous on the first tee of Augusta, you don't really want to win. Good point. I mean, what I'm hearing is if you're worried about being underqualified, you're probably going to be the one to do something about it. Very good. So D you had mentioned that uh, you have some struggles with this. Are you, uh, you want to dive into that for us? Um, I, I think that it just comes from the idea that um, I think for the most part, I've always been aware that there's always more to know about something. Like, so having that, that constant buzz of saying, I don't know enough. There's, you know, what is the saying? Like the more, you know, about something, the more, you know, you don't know about something. And, and so I think it's that constant awareness, um, that, and, and, you know, the lack of confidence may really just kind of lie in looking at someone else who is confident in their knowledge and saying they must know more, you know, that that's the assumption that you have in your head, that this other person who is ready to go and do it, they just know more. And um, that's not always true from reading and think again. I've yeah. learned that. <laughs> Always looking in your neighbor's yard, right? Mm -hmm. Always wondering what are they doing? It's, it's almost like embracing that doubt to you know, spur curiosity and continuous learning. Exactly. Brian, you had something? Yeah, did, just on, on this thought, I, I know all of you on this call and I know a lot of you, us and you deal with this imposter syndrome and it, it often stops us from doing the uncomfortable. It often prevents us from uh, taking a risk 
and you know, uh, my my word for this or term is lean into lean into the uncomfortable. Growth comes from the uncomfortable, and the uncomfortable of of not having enough confidence um, is as normal as anything is normal, and you you must lean in to grow and therefore you must feel somewhat of an imposter to grow until you're not great awesome insights everyone one last thing i want to talk about is at least topic wise uh the section adam grant talks about is negotiating and debating um sydney you had mentioned uh this stuck out to you about finding common ground you want to talk about that a little bit yeah, I think what was kind of powerful for me was that when we're in a, a coaching role, we have the information. People are coming to us because they need help or they don't know. Um, and I think sometimes if we come at it from a super, super logical perspective or we kind of dump all of our information on them, that can kind of cause them to go back into their shell and not be necessarily ready to receive the information or receive it as well as we thought they would. Um, so I think it's important to kind of step back and try to find common ground of what they already know to build on the conversation and include them in the conversation. Don't try to overwhelm them with the expertise that we have and, and make them feel included and, and available to give their opinions and their insights. Spot on. Brian. Can I dovetail on that? Sorry to dominate, but I, this is just such a powerful subject to me. I, this, this uh, concept, Sydney, of common ground, I think has never been more important than, it, than today's world of uh, deep uh, uh, convictions and divisiveness that exists. And, you know, people on the right are listening to all the right news. People on the left are listening to all the left news and becoming more and more divided. So finding common ground, which is why I, I felt like the Grand Summit for me felt really special because we were talking about things together that every, like values and culture and leadership and developing people. And it felt like a community. So we found common ground, which will help um, people have a common dialogue to even work through deeply, deeply divisive issues and think again. So, so true in general and specifically for today's society, even more so. Yeah. Andrew. And a takeaway I had, I think speaks to this is his method that acknowledging complexity helps generate more options and it pulls people out of black and white thinking that an environment, an environment and acknowledging it, it, it doesn't actually acknowledging complexity doesn't impede progress. It can often help progress by pulling people out of black and white thinking and being able to find, well, where do, where do we agree? This isn't a one-off all or nothing type argument. This is very complex. And yeah. I, that, was, that was a takeaway for me that acknowledging complexity helps generate more options. Yeah, it ties into the binary bias that he spoke about a lot. You know, binary bias dominates the world right now. It's either one way or another and there's no middle ground. Mm -hmm. Um, and in conjunction with that, I was thinking about the, is it the forecasters, the, the people that predict, um, that make these overarching predictions. And uh, the one forecaster that he followed 
was saying how um, in order to kind of keep exercising that rethinking was to write the write down the circumstances um, that he's made that decision and what factors might change that decision um, either in the future or what was the basis for that decision. So you're, you're kind of giving yourself permission to say this was a decision made at this moment in time because of these factors around me. And it's the same thing with beliefs. You know, I believe this and people stay so entrenched in a belief without realizing that that might've been something that was handed down to them from their parents or, you know, given to them by someone that they admired. And then next thing you know, they're so entrenched in something that there's actually a, a, a sliding scale on that, you know, and those things have changed over the years. Yeah, I, I think that circles back to the identity role separation that people people confuse beliefs with opinions. People confuse facts with opinions. Mm. And we we get set on these ideas that are the are we have the wrong interpretation of what it is we're thinking. It's this isn't a fact, it's an opinion or you know, vice versa. You know, it's Yeah, and and work-wise when people when you're asking people like even just as simple as making budgets making three different budgets because and then understanding the circumstances for why they have three different budgets and being able to pivot when they need to and totally. saying here's the goal post it moved that's good d but we're an ambitious company we have to have 10% growth we have to have 10% growth in order to be ambitious we have to have 50% growth well Ambition is a little more complex, right? Staying nimble in light of new ideas. Name of the game. Big, big takeaway for me of that, that section of negotiating and debating and finding the common ground was the steel man and straw man. Colin had a, had a great takeaway with that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Colin? I do. Thank you, Vince. Um, so I find a lot in coaching calls. I'll try and convince someone of a way of doing something or give reasons for, for, for change. And then they'll pick apart the lesser of the reasons. And that tends to devalue the strongest reason that I, that I, I believe to be the, the case. So giving fewer reasons, not more reasons. Um, and then that allows you to have a, a strong man conversation about that reason as opposed to spending too much time on the, sorry, the steel man conversation instead of spending too much time on the straw man conversation. So that's that's one thing that I'll be able to implement in my day-to-day -day pretty much right away. Right on. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting about that section and how the, the world debate champion was going against the computer and how everyone in attendance thought the world debate champion won, but then looking at it, the computer provided more facts, but they didn't really win anyone over. That was interesting, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So open floor, was there any takeaways that we had missed that we want to talk about? Sydney, what you got? Yeah, I think this one kind of plays off of what Dee was saying earlier about when he talked about his brother and how his brother, because of the um, influences of the grandparents, always thought that he was going to be a neurosurgeon, right? And, and he went down that whole pathway into medical school and all of that. And, and eventually finally got burnt out because he was afraid to think again about his 
um, career and his career path. And, mm-hmm. and that, that actually happened to me, um, you know, growing up loving animals, but you're going to be a vet. We have a vet in the family. Yay. You know, <laughs> you know, this prestigious career. And then my, you know, so all throughout my childhood, I, you know, they talked about how they ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always knew I was that kid that knew. Um, I knew where I was going to go to University of Georgia and I had it all planned out. And then my senior year of high school, I shadowed a vet and I was like, oh, wait, this is not, this is not what I thought I was signing up for. Wait, 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 wait. You know, so I still entered college as a pre-vet major, but I ended up graduating with, you know, business administration and interning for pharmaceutical market research company. And now I'm here. How does does that happen? You know, where, where did I have that, you know, think again, you know, when is somebody confident enough to say, you know, wait, that's not actually what I wanted to do, you know, and the brother ended up fulfilling his passions for, you know, medical in the medical realm, but not necessarily in what he thought that he needed to do to fulfill that. So that was a, a real powerful takeaway for me personally. You know, I want to comment on something that you that you just spurred on. Um, I have a comment that I say all the time. We're all we're all three feet from gold. All right. It's right there, whatever it it is. Sometimes we look way out and we and this and that. But the mental dexterity will allow us to look sometimes what's right here in, in front of us. And if we don't have that, then we don't we don't see it. We get blinded. We get blinded by it. Andrew. The two two quick things. I thought there was wonderful affirmation uh, in one thing, a lot of work that this group has been doing over the last couple of years, that lectures are not the best form of learning uh, involving people. And we this group has done an awesome job making workshops, not lectures. And so that was wonderfully affirming. Um, the other takeaway, maybe sort of tangentially, was... Uh, be careful what you do when you're testing people because one of your subjects might be Ted Kaczynski. Right. The right. You, yes. you, may, you may cause a much bigger problem than the one you're trying to solve. Wasn't that crazy? Yeah, that was... Yeah, I, thought, I thought it was fantastic how he brought that up and, and he, left, he left the bombshell that it was Ted Kaczynski for the last couple of sentences in yep. that chapter. Yeah. And... Uh, that was always very interesting. If if no one's seen the Manhunt uh, TV show, highly recommended. Be careful the solution you're applying doesn't cause a, a bigger problem <laughs> than the one you're facing. <laughs> yeah, who'd have thought that uh, ripping someone's entire beliefs to shreds would cause them to go mad? <laughs> who knew? <laughs> so how are we gonna implement our takeaways into our daily life? At least for me, being aware of overconfidence cycles and biases that we see, you know, if we're seeing a confirmation bias of something that we expect to see or, or a binary bias of it's either this way or that way. Uh, I think that's something that I'm going to try and bring more into my life. Is anyone else, you know, taking something away that they're going to try and implement? Let's get Steve, Steve talking to. Sorry about that. Yeah. You know, I, I, my takeaway, I think, is just it was reinforced um, about being open-minded to listen to different avenues. You know, I mean, different different points of, of view. In today's society, right now, there's so divert, there's so much going on, and and I uh, I like to switch between the news channels. You know, and I 
And, and there's a lot of people that just can't do that, you know, and I, and I, I've been really, it's a, it's a sticky thing to talk about, but it just reinforces that this book is really in line with, with today's society to absorb this, you know, and just open your mind and rethink things and have health, healthy debate based on your values. But, um, uh, but it just reaffirmed that it reaffirmed to be open, you know, so it was, it was good. Totally. Good takeaways. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, it's a very timely book. I mean, it's it's relatively new within the past couple of years, too. So, yeah. Andrew. Sorry, um, about takeaways, I would say uh, for, for me, I'm going to journal quite a bit about this. We talk about journaling in the sales boot camps. And I wouldn't want one thing Brian got me doing early on was journaling, have a coach's journal. So all the takeaways we have, I, I would encourage everyone here to write this down in your journal and maybe you haven't started a journal yet, but start a journal with things you're taking away and how you're going to implement. Journaling is hands down uh, one of the best ways to go about it. Fantastic. My two cents. No, it's quality yeah. feedback. I'm going to be wanna... more disagree. I'm going to be more disagreeable. <laughs> awesome. So I want to leave today with some favorite quotes from the book. Uh, defaulting to the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. So be wary of that. Uh, don't be an armchair quarterback thinking you know more uh, about something than an actual expert and shouting at the TV. Um, Bootlickers and boat rockers and knowing the difference. Is there any other uh, favorite quotes that people have? What, what evidence would make you change your mind? The quote in line. Awesome. All right. I think that's it for us, folks. Hey, Vince, you did a great job. Great, great job, job, Vince. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, man. Great, great discussion, mind-provoking stuff that we we needed. And yeah, this is great, a book for book. our time. This is a book for our time. Yeah, mm -hmm. awesome book. Yeah. All right, everybody. Hey, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode. Out of the Hourglass is recorded and produced by the team at Nolan Consulting Group, a nationwide business consulting firm with coaches located around the country. Have a question, comment, or idea for a future episode? We'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, www.nolancg.com.